Hey gang, it's me, Vince here. Uh, I was lucky enough to interview Buddha Lowe, the latest Top Chef winner this week for GQ. And Buddha was nice enough to let me post the audio of that here for you on the podcast feed. Uh, this is the second time that I've interviewed Buddha because, you know, it's the second time he's won. Um, and yeah, he's he's a good interview he's very knowledgeable and has had a real interesting life and uh seems like he's read all of uh the top chef power rankings that i've written about him so uh yeah um i hope you enjoy the interview i don't think i have to introduce it much more than that uh we'll be back with a new broadcast and a new pod yourself the wire this week so until then enjoy the interview all right well congrats chef Thank you. I haven't had the chance to read your uh, article yet. <laughs> I haven't written this one, uh, this one for this week yet. It's. Uh, oh really? Yeah. Well, I, usually I get them like two days ahead of time, so I have time to write it up. But I didn't. I didn't see the last act until like ten o'clock last night. Uh, okay. Yeah. I was wondering how fast you get them done. So. <laughs> I mean, I, like. Sorry. Yeah. God. They usually like put up like an hour or two after the episode, so. Yeah, like that. He's fast. <laughs> no, it, like, usually I get them on Tuesday, and then I watch the episode like twice before I write it. So it's uh, yeah, it takes me way it's longer. Been, been great to watch. <laughs> Thank you, uh, you almost had a perfect streak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that first episode. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> it it I, it's fine. Like I I don't really see. I it's such a heavy hitting season, and you just. Really, it could have been anyone's game. Yeah. Um, so on that note, you know, like uh, you've been compared by me and others to Moneyball, to the math yeah. people who solve Jeopardy. Um, like, did you solve Top Chef? Have you figured out how to how to game the system? I feel like um, if if you really look at it, I feel like people say a game the system, but you can't really game top chef. Yes, you can understand it. And that's what you need to do before you enter any competition. If someone told you you're entering a competition tomorrow, surely you got to like do at least a Google search of what you're entering. Um, whether if it's like an egg and spoon race or something that you had to do something that was like anyway. Um, but I would say that it, when people say that it kind of downplays the, the, the career that I've had, I've worked in kitchens. I've worked for my dad when I was, I actually worked when I was nine years old as a server. And, my, and that's, those are the sort of properties that I learned at the start um, that actually helped, helped me later on in Restaurant Wars. But was that me getting ready for Restaurant Wars? Was that me just absolutely loving what I do? It's everything that I've achieved and everything that I showed on the show is that it's just all the things that I love doing. I love cooking. I love serving. I love all aspects of cooking. And I think that 25% of knowing uh, what Top Chef is and what it's about is absolutely, um, is that's, a, that's a, all it makes up for. 75% you have to cook. If you don't execute or perform on the day, you're going home. You can't, you can't practice or can't practice for a Vietnamese street food challenge in, in English in the England um, uh, season of Top Chef. So it's 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 very hard to um, yeah it, you, you can't really get you can you can practice and get ready for it, but you can't actually hack a system to it. There's right. no there's you got to execute it. You can know the techniques, but you still got to be able to execute them. 
Exactly. At, at the end of the day, it's called Top Chef. You have to be able to cook, be a chef. And and that's what's really interesting about it is that it's not set in a studio like most cooking competitions. This is set in a setting where you're in different locations. You're paired up with people that you barely even know and you have to work together as a team. So those are the sort of qualities that being a chef is all about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so you have seen obviously like a lot of previous uh, Top Chef seasons. Like do you, uh, who do you think has been as dominant in their season as you were in uh, these past two seasons? Is there anyone, any other chefs that come to mind? It's very hard. You know, the, the, the names Melissa King and Paul Key always comes up uh, just because of how well they did. But it's also very hard to compare it because um, in, all, in a traditional all-star season doesn't particularly have people that have made it all the way into the finale so or, or any winners. And same with Paul Key. Maybe his, you know, his, comp, his uh, season was uh, pretty much... Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a normal season, not to put anything down, but like... Um, it was not anything like a, a, the best of the best, like an all-star season or a world all-star season. So it's very hard to compete. And I think that you could put them in, in it, it probably in an above category. If would, you look at that. Yeah. Would you, uh, would you ever compete in an all-star, all-star, like champion? I don't know what they even call it at like this a, point. Like, a, <laughs> like what? Like a galaxy. Like, <laughs> yeah. <Earth> yeah. Versus, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would. <laughs> and I have to brush up on my space food. <laughs> so tell me about the molds. How many did you bring? Uh, what shapes were they? How did you decide which molds to bring? So I just basically ran, like went on some Etsy sites and Amazon and just looked at, just, you know, just typed the word mold. And, you know, there's like, there's so many molds out there in the world. I just feel like <clears throat> realistically, uh, in, in the time that we've had molds, which is so long ago, uh, if you look at your stock standard ice cube tray, um, it's all square and we've had them square for a very long time. You know, on Amazon, you can get a skull mold that's an ice cube tray for like, you know, $4. So you can get, you can get yourself a, quite a few things, but you just never know what sort of, um, where you're going to be at, at some point. And some molds cost like a hundred dollars. So it's 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 very hard to a thousand dollars a mold might sound like a lot, but it really doesn't get you a, a ton. If you look at the the stencil mat that I used for my lease on the final in Tucson, each of those lease sheets cost fifty dollars, so that's already two hundred dollars in in lease sheet. That's already a fifth of my budget. But the the box is like literally like this big. Mm -hmm fitted in there there's actually a lot of other things that i wanted to bring uh but i couldn't even fit it in there there was actually actually just trying to put a uh children's pottery set on the um <laughs> inside the box but it didn't fit uh yeah this this one weird trick can make your food look 50 percent cooler kind of thing with the exactly mold. you know even if it wasn't for the mold you can still do it in a way that you know, if you traditionally did it, it, it would still be the same. It would not change. It would still be the same dish. Um, but it's just more fun to just do it in a in a different way mm -hmm. and challenge the mind. Because that's what I loved about Top Chef for the first time. It's like you're never in these positions where they're like, we want this and we want you to make it so spectacular and we want you to bring it to so many different levels. 
you don't get that in it. Like, imagine owning a bistro and you pull out the skull mold. People go, "What the hell are you doing?" You know. So there's only so many like times when when you can do when you can pull out these tricks and there's a there's a problem. Like the hand mold, I'm never going to do that again in my life. <laughs> like, why would I do that? Hands of Mother Nature. Like, but who? But then again, what sort of guest comes up to me and says, "I want a dish that I can eat with my hands that sends a message." <laughs> yeah. So, and 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 your guess is gone. <laughs> um, one of my commenters asked, uh, "Are Buddha and Sarah besties or worsties?" So I was wondering if you could weigh in on that. Uh, you know, me and Sarah, you, it, towards towards the end, it was it was definitely getting tough. I think it was getting fatigued, and um, you know, me, me and Sarah, we, we we talk to each other still, but we're not, you know, we're not besties by any means. <laughs> okay. Um, what was your favorite thing that you ate that another competitor cooked this season? Uh, what's my favorite thing that I ate? Uh, oh, I'd say I say a Mars lamb at the Verbo Challenge. That was that was a definite clear winner. It was so delicious. Which uh, that was? Uh, I'm trying to remember what the lamb dish he made. He did a lamb shake dish uh, inspired uh, by Morocco. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it was delicious. Yeah. Um. So after we spoke last season, one of the things that I sort of took away and I've thought about many times since then is like you talking about the economics of uh, culinary school uh, and how they how it works in Australia. Um, could you explain that um, again? Yeah, of course. I love that you included it last time. So basically, um, in Australia, if you decide to become a chef, you get uh, you get five thousand dollars if you join up, ten thousand dollars if you complete it, five hundred dollars for tools, and then you also get um, you don't you actually get paid to go to school as well as like a so you do four days of work, one day of uh, schooling, <clears throat> and uh, that one day is classified your day of work, so you get paid as a five day work week to go to school, and yeah, it basically was in, in enticed because the industry was in need of chefs and we were constantly having to get chefs from abroad and they realized that it was a huge skill shortage and if you want uh, a good amount of tourism then you would need enough restaurants to cater for that tourism and if you don't have enough chefs in your country in your country then you need to start investing in them and so that's what happened in Australia so it's been and and also it's it's, it's known that chefs don't get paid a lot of money <laughs> and so it's very hard for them to be enticed to pay so much money to go to cooking school to get paid, you know, a, a bare minimum wage. Yeah. I mean, it, is it frustrating living in the U.S. Uh, sometimes where it feels like, I don't know, maybe uh, we're still arguing about things that other countries have solved years ago? Uh, yeah, I, I, of course. And I think that just goes with everywhere in the world. You know, you will find different things that you don't agree with. And look, I think that, if we if we were to change if if America could change up the system a little bit and invested a little bit more into um, having having access you know making it more accessible for chefs to go to cooking school, I think it'd be easier choice for them to decide whether or not they want to go down that path because it's very hard to go okay well I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go to cooking school and I'm gonna pay a lot of money and then your parents pay for it and then they go okay well I want you to be and then you go, oh, well, I can't really cook at some, you know, average place. I need to show why I 
you know, I went to cooking college and then you go to this, you know, one of the best restaurants and they don't necessarily pay the best money. And um, it's kind of hard pill to swallow. And I think it would be easier if uh, cooking school was actually a little bit more accessible. Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like the amount of uh, debt that the average uh, chef in the U.S. carries uh, is pretty high. Is that unique? I mean, you've worked around the world. Do you think that's unique to here or is that uh, a problem all over? It's very unique to here. Like cooking schools, you know, especially for, I can't say for the international students who are in Australia, but if you're an Australian and you have an Australian citizen, yeah, you 100% get looked after when it comes to culinary school. And I think it really shows because Australian food scene is incredible. Uh, Australian chefs are also really amazing. And I think that comes with the reason why um, it was just, you know, it was looked at a skill shortage and the government acted upon it. Right. Um, in, in your bio that your, uh, I think your agent or PR person sent me, um, it talks about some of your uh, Aboriginal ancestry. I, I don't remember you bringing that up on the show. Could you uh, talk about that a little bit? I, I don't um I don't have any ancestry, but I I grew up in an Aboriginal community. Right. Uh, it, not not like in the community, but like it was it was more there was there's a um yeah it, it, it's a larger style community with Aboriginals. So when I went to school, um, I didn't really know where I fit in, and I kind of hanged around Aboriginals, and they took me in, and we would hang out like in lunch and you know, through lunch break and go pick ants off trees and eat them and, you know, goes into the sugarcane fields looking for Guangdong berries. And some of them, you know, after school, they'll throw turtles on, on a fire and start eating them and stuff like that. So I was very lucky to be able to be a part of that and um, and, and, and um, has this sort of uh, like one-on-one of like how they lived off the land. Mm-hmm. I think you talked about uh, eating dugongs last time in our last interview, uh, which was very interesting to me. It was, it's actually really delicious, but I, I don't think I'll have access to that ever again. What does it taste like? It's like, it's like you know, we always relate, um, like, I would say bonito, like smoked fish or bonito tastes like bacon to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like when you have katsubushi, but when you have a pork chop that literally lives in the water. Um, it's kind of like marinating in like seawater. Mm-hmm. And it was like a luscious pork chop, like huge fat cap onto it. And they pan fried it so beautifully. Lot, like so, like sweet soy sauce. It was like sweet, caramelized, salty, fatty. And then it also had like that sort of surf and turf feel to it because it was from the ocean, but tastes like a piece of pork. It was incredible. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have to make it sound worse so people don't start poaching because that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you talked about growing up working in uh, your family's Chinese restaurant and, you know, you've always also trained in like French and European style cooking. Like, what do you think the French could learn from uh, Chinese cooking and the Chinese styles of uh, preparing food? Of course. Uh, I think the... Um... I think French and Chinese, it, it is it is relatively different, you know, in terms of, you know, French usually sort of presentations are like 
what what to them is art and to what Chinese people is art is completely different. But um, in 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 terms of like if my dad would show me how to cut a chicken, and you'll notice this in like when you go to a Chinese restaurant and you order half a chicken. There's so much technique that goes into making that thing come back together. They're, they're, they're like surgically breaking down a chicken, cutting it all into all these different sections, and then putting it back together like it's never been touched. That mm-hmm. is like that is presentation, but people don't look at it like that. That is a presentation in an art form in itself. Um, the Chinese would also do a lot of, and, and something that would be very similar is that. The Chinese also did a lot of vegetable carving. They did, and and the French would also do that sort of stuff as well, where they were trying to mimic, like you know, my I remember my dad would make a tower out of a carrot or mm-hmm. lobster, kumbap. You know, those are those are techniques that are very interesting that could be either French or or Chinese. But the the French are always interested in Asian cuisine, and I keep as the more that I keep deep diving into it, um, French and Japanese has been a a, a fusion that's been happening for quite some time, and it just gets better and better and better. Um, and once I deep dive into Chinese flavors, which they they already start to like, even even when we ate a Helen de Rose, she had like a Chinese lobster dish on her menu, and it was delicious. So the, the more that they keep exploring about it, the more they're going to learn. Mm-hmm. But it's the same. Um, it's the same thing with the the Chinese food as well. Um, in terms of like palette uh like do you think that there are textures and flavors that uh maybe like the chinese have been exploring that uh that western palettes uh don't understand yet or haven't um started exploring in that same way no the western palettes getting there and so they they're they're, and what's great about it is that you know we have we're i wouldn't i don't know how long ago would probably would say but especially in Australia, we became like this sort of movement and change. So, for example, my dad, when he first started, he, he opened up a Chinese restaurant which sold like fried chicken and chips. You know, uh, it was like a, even like a, he called it a Swiss chicken cutlet, which was like a cordon bleu. It's like <laughs> so weird to have in a Chinese restaurant. And the more that it's evolved, the more Chinese it's become and the more people have become interested in it. So I think that, the more that people are slowly getting to know what real Chinese food is, the more that it's starting to change the world of cooking because real Chinese food is like phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I think there was like a viral, uh, I don't know if it was a TikTok or something, but someone, it, was, it was basically like a someone had describing their Chinese takeout in, uh, in the UK and, and the Americans were sort of interested in the differences between uh, British Chinese food and what we think of as American Chinese food. What, what is, what was like a, Australian Chinese food that you guys were preparing when you were growing up versus the Chinese food that you've seen uh, in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, so look, they're, they're very similar in a way. Um, you know, you would never find these sort of, chicken dishes that are covered in a sweet sauce, you know, in Chinese cuisine, where it's like deep fried. Um, there's, there's a lot of American Chinese stuff that, you know, America, like we don't have uh, egg roll in, in, uh, in Australia. We have, we have things like a dim sim, um, and the, but you call dim sum kind of like the, the trolleys and stuff like that. But we have in Australian uh, cooking culture, we have a thing called a dim sim. It's very similar to a siu mai. 
um, uh, and yeah, it's very Australian. So you won't you won't find it. It's very interesting when you go to different countries how they do Chinese food. For example, French they they have like a sort of like a oh like a buffet style Chinese food. But the thing is, none of it's hot. They will mm-hmm. then put it all in a container and then they'll microwave it. So everything's like vastly different in a, in a way. Growing up in a Chinese restaurant in Australia. Um, you know, we see our our version of it, and there's so many different versions of it around the world. Yeah, um, on the show, like, were the in trying to shop at Parisian markets, was there was the produce like different quality, or the products that you could find in Paris different than what you were getting in London? Yeah, it was uh, it was very interesting. I'm not sure if it was the off day, but yeah, as you can see, we were we were kind of struggling trying to get the products that we wanted. I kind of, I did kind of think like, oh yeah, lobster's a no-brainer. Like you can, you can surely get lobster in Paris. Like, of course, especially in, um, especially if I go to a seafood store in Paris, like I should be able to get it. But it was really weird because they did, they all they had was cooked lobster or tin lobster at the seafood places. So found that extremely weird. Um, in England, you know, if we got told to go to, as you can see, you know, in restaurant wars, we use this beautiful meat and fish supplier in Notting Hill, stunning produce. And so you can get live scallops, you can get live lobsters, you can get really, really nice fish. Yeah, we're, we're very limited to what we what we could get um, in the sense that we're specifically looking at some things. I know Gabri had a trouble looking for plantains. So, yeah, it's, it was different, but also the, the language barrier also didn't help either. Yeah, that was kind of surprising that... Uh that was so hard to find uh, anyone at a, at a market to help you with that stuff. There was a uh, market that we just missed the timing to go to because it was about to shut. And I don't know why they shut so early anyway. Uh, I think, I think it's, they hey, take a break or something in between because that's, because that's what they do. But when we were, by the time we got there, we probably only had 15 minutes, but none of us touched it. But after the show was done, me and Gabriel went to go explore it, mm-hmm. and it was a stunning market. It had everything, everything that you want. So uh, I've not gotten to that. Yeah, it's called the best market. Sorry, say that again. You cut out a little bit there. It's called the bestie market. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's incredible. Um, Omar talked about that uh, in London that you guys basically like bought the whole foods like out of ap flour like pretty early on and then it was kind of hard to find for the rest of the season See, that that was hard because brexit was not brexit and the um and the sanctions going on um it, it we were starting to realize that things are the staples were running out and for example we couldn't find i couldn't find vanilla essence and so that's something that you should be able to find everywhere and i couldn't uh, so many people for just like vanilla essence or vanilla bean and it, and it was nothing in the store and i actually stuffed up in one of the challenges and because i thought this, uh, this is the only flour that's here and it says bread flour and i'm going to make bread and it's actually gluten-free mm. so <laughs> they didn't put they didn't put it in the edit but it didn't matter i had immunity that challenge anyway so um but yeah it, it, it didn't it didn't work out at all for me were there other important things that, or things that you thought were like important um, story beats that didn't make the edit that you were surprised about? Um, I think that a lot of, uh, I think a lot of the backstory. I think there's so many interesting things. Like 
for example, like the class, she, the reason that she learned how to speak English is because she read comic books. Like it was so thing just sitting next to her and she'd just be reading comic books the whole day. Um, you know, obviously Sylvia's got so many stories about her back in Poland and what's happening with the war. You know, they touch base on it, but like her, 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 her family, uh, I don't even want to, you know, she also had some things going on with her family. I probably wouldn't want to disclose, but like, yeah, there's a lot of things that happen that doesn't get mentioned onto the show for sure. Like you can probably drag out another season if you even go into the backstories or even the breakdown of how we did the dishes in some parts, you know. Uh, I think there's so much to uncover, but it's very hard to fit in even on a supersized uh, episode. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you've given me a lot of time, so I'm just going to leave you with one more question uh, that tomato tea which i was lucky enough to try uh at the restaurant wars dinner it was very good uh how did you how did you make that so the tomato tea is um you know obviously you need really really good tomatoes um you would then put it in a uh, kitchen process a food processor and then you're going to hang that in a cheesecloth so the water drips down and then and and with like something to press it down as well so you're going to get this clear clarified tomato water and then you're going to reduce it by a little bit, add some uh, white balsamic vinegar, um, followed by a shitload of lemon thyme, herb, uh, basil, um, uh, a touch of sugar, and salt. And that's it. What, did you use the pulp for anything, or was that the... Yeah, the pulp it? on that day I gave to Kraft, and they used it for family as, a, as like a posada. Got it. Cool. Um, well, it's been a joy watching you and, uh, thank you for talking to me. I, uh, it's always an enjoyable interview too. Thank you. And it's been a joy reading your articles. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right. Yeah. Take care. Thank you.